Uh, I bring you greetings from St. Helens. We pray for you regularly and are delighted to, I'd be delighted to see the work and meet many friends here. So thank you for having me. Now I'm going to leave us in prayer and then we're going to be looking at the most important question that any of us will ever come to face. So let's pray together. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and no one will pluck them from my hand. And so we do pray, our Father in heaven, that in your grace and mercy you would enable us to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd, to follow him, and so to be safe with him for eternity. In Jesus' name, Amen. Information is everything. A number of years ago, they were clearing trees behind our house, and it was February, and that's our winter, and the council officer came for an interview with three of the senior ladies in the area in which we live who wished to have the houses cleared. Poor chap, I don't think he standed a ch stood a chance. I called it an interview without coffee. And uh, in March, the men came and marked the trees that were to be cut down. And in April, which is our spring, two crows decided that they were to make a nest in one of those trees. And they spent hours building it. And it was a thing of some beauty to them. Uh, what they didn't realize was that there was a cross on the bottom of the tree. And so in May, when the men came with the chainsaws, everything they had planned and worked on was swept away. Information is everything. The church we serve in is surrounded by huge tower blocks, all of them office blocks. 500,000 people come to work within a square kilometre of our church. They're all in the financial industry. And you know, if you're in finances, that information is everything. Many of you students, information is everything. Farmers, trackers, whatever you happen to be, information is everything. And our subject this evening is, well, the most important piece of information we will consider, certainly this week, this month, possibly forever. What is it that God is doing on earth? What on earth is he doing? And immediately you can see that that is a more significant matter than matters merely financial, agricultural, medical, relational, where we live, and so forth. For if we don't know what God is doing, then we'll never line our lives up with what really matters. If we fail to grasp what God is doing, we will never be able to live our best life, fulfill our potential, or know what is to happen in eternity. We're going to focus primarily on the sentences in verse 18 through 29, and you will see in chapter 5, verse 18 through to 9, 29, that Jesus claims unequivocally that he is doing the work of God. He's just healed a man who has been paralysed for 38 years. We'll come back to him towards the end. He has done this publicly in a named place. You can visit it, Bethesda in Jerusalem. His opponents cannot deny that this is what he's done. And he's done it on the Sabbath. 
And so this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And Jesus answered, my father is working and I too am working. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. He was not only breaking the Sabbath, but even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now you can see there immediately a claim to equality with God, that Jesus is doing the work of God. But if you're not persuaded, he drives that forward in verses 19 through 20. Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, that you may marvel. So, do, doing, does, does, doing, and greater works than these will he show the Son. And notice, the Father shows the Son, and the Son only does what the Father is doing. And what the Father shows the Son, likewise, that the Son does. And whatever the Father shows, the Son does likewise. There is nothing that the Father shows the Son that he does not do. And the Son is doing all that the Father is doing. So if we thought that Jesus' claim to equality with God was extreme in verses 16, 17 and 18, then Jesus then simply drives it deeper in verses 19 and 20. Some have suggested an illustration, the ambassador. So you want to know what uh, ED is thinking if you're living in the United Kingdom, you go to Zimbabwe House and you find the ambassador, Colonel Christian Katsandi, and you ask him, what is the president of Zimbabwe up to? And he will tell you. But the ambassador is not the president. So Jesus is making a higher claim still. It's like the family business where the master craftsman trains and enables and hands over the whole work of his business to his only son. And you're able to say, well now, what is the master craftsman up? Well, we'll talk to the only son. And Jesus is making such a claim. And of course, that explains the miracles. No one can do the kind of things that Jesus does unless he is equal with God. And that explains him doing on the Sabbath because the Sabbath was the day of new creation hope. And that explains why this gospel begins the way it begins. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so we can say, well, if we want to know what God is doing on earth, what on earth is God doing, we look at Jesus. And so we can say, God is doing what Jesus is doing. Jesus is doing the very work of God. Now, those of you who are paying attention and uh, astute and relatively smart, which I take is everybody here, being in a university town, will notice that we haven't actually answered the question yet. Well, what on earth is God doing? God is doing what Jesus is doing. But hang on a second. What on earth is Jesus doing? If you want to know what God is doing, look at Jesus. 
And that's where Jesus goes next in the following verses. Our passage is divided by three truly, truly statements. One in verse 19, one in verse 24, one in verse 25. And we begin by looking at the work of the Son, what he's doing. Then we will look at the world and the Son, why he's doing it. And then we will look at the word of the Son, how he does it, and then we'll draw things to a close. The work. So the three truly, truly statements. Jesus explains his work in 19 through 23. 24 is a summary statement. 25 through 29, he shows us which part of the work he is doing at which particular time. So 19 through 29, the work of the Son. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own. Well, we've looked at verses 19 and 20. Let's dive straight in 21 through 23, where Jesus shows that he has come both to bring spiritual life and judgment. 23. Sorry, 21. As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honour the Son, just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son, does not honour the Father who sent him. And so the work of Jesus on the earth is to bring life to the spiritually dead souls of men and women who are, without the Lord Jesus, in their lives, spiritual corpses, no better than the dead dog that we passed as we drove up here on the road. As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The work of Jesus on the earth is to bring spiritual life to men and women like you and me. 22, the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. So notice again the all, the as, the no one, the does not, the does not. So God the Father has entrusted all of his work of life-giving to the Son, the Lord Jesus. He is the one who will bring spiritual life to the spiritual dead. And God has entrusted to the Lord Jesus the job of final judgment. Now verse 24 has, if you like, a summary Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has crossed over from death to life. So that as I hear and believe, so in the present I have eternal life. It's as if there's a line drawn in the sand. And the person who hears the word of God today crosses over from death to life. And the person who trusts Jesus today 
crosses over from the land of spiritual corpse to the land of spiritual life. And from the land of condemnation and judgment to the land of forgiveness and friendship with God. And then in 25 through 29, it's as if Jesus draws a timeline. Now, a timeline is a line along which time travels. Management consultants tell you about them and charge a huge amount of money for them. He tells us what he will do then and what he will do today. And what he will do then is in 27 through 29. He has given Jesus authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good, receiving the Lord Jesus, to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil, rejecting the Lord Jesus, to the resurrection of judgment. So here is what Jesus will do on the last day. The church we meet in, in St. Helens, as I say, has been there since the 12th century. All around the walls there are these monuments of important people. Earl Spencer, he was an ancestor of Princess Diana. Sir Thomas Gresham, he whole part of the city is named after him, a village, a school. A guy called Julius Caesar, not the Julius Caesar, but another guy named Julius Caesar, Sir Thomas Bancroft. They will all come out to judgment. I will come out to judgment. My parents, my grandparents, your parents, your grandparents, we will all come out to judgment to stand before the Lord Jesus because God has entrusted to Jesus all judgment on the last day. And then in 25 through 26, what he is doing now. An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Why, it's as if God were to have a diary or a calendar. Now, before you get too uh, excited, I know God does not need a diary or a calendar. He's God. But it's as if he were to have a diary or a calendar. Here is the creation of the universe. Here is the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, the preparation for the coming of Jesus. Here is 33 AD, 34 AD, 35 AD. What is it that the Lord Jesus has come to do? To give life, to give life. Here is 133 AD. What is Jesus doing in 133 AD? Giving life, spiritual life. Here is 1933. What is the Lord? Here is 2023. What is it that the Lord Jesus is doing today, on October the 29th, 2023, in this world? He is, here is the final page. Judgment. You've heard the saying, somebody says, he's gone to meet his maker. She's gone to meet her maker. Jesus says, he's come to meet me. Because all judgment has been entrusted to the Son. Well, there is the work of the Lord Jesus. But I can hear somebody saying, how come that is what Jesus has come to do? Now, I've spoken on this passage a number of years ago down in Cape Town. Uh, sorry to mention that after last night, but uh, I did. I'm sorry, I was with Mitch supporting the other side, but we needn't get into that. It's a long story. But I spoke on this passage in Cape Town and then shortly afterwards in Vinto, over there in Namibia. And I was so conscious 
What is it that Jesus has come to do? He's come to give spiritual life and ultimately to bring judgment. Conscious of the vast needs of the African continent, almost, if you like, weighing down upon us to the north. Medical needs, financial needs, political needs, social needs. Why is it that the work on earth that the Lord Jesus has come to to do is this work of bringing life today. Why, Why hasn't he done all these other things? And the answer is there, again, in our verse, the key verse, the summary verse, verse 24. Look down at verse 24 again, or up at the screen, where I hope it will appear. And I'm going to read this verse. In fact, I think we'll read it together. And as we read it together, I want you to answer the question, what is Jesus' analysis of you and me? How does Jesus see us outside of Christ? Okay, I'm not going to pick on you, or I might pick on Mitch, but I'm not going to pick on anybody else after, after we've read the verse. But let's read it together, shall we? Just make sure you're still alive out there. John chapter 5, verse 24, we'll read it together. What is his analysis of our natural state? You ready? I will count to three. I will start reading. I hope I won't be alone. One, two, three. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So what does Jesus think of us, apart from his work? A clue? The answer is at the end of the verse. He does not come into judgment. Well, if I'm outside of Christ, I come into judgment. He has passed from death to life. If I'm outside of Christ... I am dead. So we are under spiritual judgment, says Jesus. We are spiritually dead. And this is so important that this is the work that Jesus has come to do on the earth. To rescue us from this peril. I remember seeing this for the very first time and asking myself, well, is that actually fair? You may say, well, hang on a second, I'm sure I'm not spiritually dead outside of Christ. Is that actually fair? And so I traced through the rest of Jesus' teaching about your spiritual state and mine in the next few chapters. Okay, what have we got so far? Outside of Christ, we are dead. Outside of Christ, we stand condemned. Chapter 6, verse 63, Jesus' word, it's spirit... It's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is helpless. Now, when you stop and think about it, that is obviously the case, isn't it? Dead people cannot help themselves. Spiritual corpses are, by definition, helpless. If you want an illustration of that, I suggest you go to the meat market on Monday. Go down to the meat market and find a dead animal. Uh, Don't pick up one of the live ones, it won't make the point. And once you've got this dead chicken in your hand, say to it, run off, will you? 
I suggest you do it very quietly, otherwise the people in the white coats will come and take you away. Dead, condemned, helpless. Chapter 7, verse 7. Jesus' analysis of you and me. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. Dead, condemned, helpless, evil. Chapter 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, in the dark, blind. Chapter 8, verse 24. Anyone who sins is a slave to sin, enslaved. And then most powerful of all, chapter 8, verse 44, you are of your father the devil. Now as I say, when I first read all these verses together and wrote them down together, the hairs on the back of my neck stood on end. This is Jesus' analysis of humanity outside of him. The vast mass of the African continent, every individual outside of Christ, the whole of the United Kingdom, no exceptions, no exemptions, spiritually dead, condemned, helpless therefore, evil by virtue of obvious, the sin that there is in the world, blind, living in the dark, unable to see God, enslaved, doing the things I don't want to do, always doing the things I don't want to do, and not doing the things that I want to do, enslaved by sin, and therefore inevitably on the other side, children of the devil. Now, I know we find this hard to get hold of. There was a French guy, it's always the French, there was a French guy called Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And Jean-Jacques Rousseau, I'm hoping there's nobody French here just because, you know, I think I'm on safe ground. But there was a French guy, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who's a philosopher, and he had this to say. He said, man is born free. In other words, we're essentially good. No, says Jesus. Man is born enslaved. Man is born dead. Man is born evil. And Rousseau went on to say this, listen to this, he, he wrote us something called the Discourse in, on Inequality, it's easy to read, but in the last three pages he says this, humanity is essentially good, I believe I've demonstrated it. Savage man, when he has eaten, is at peace with all of nature and the friend of all fellow human beings. Now, I can only say Rousseau can clearly never have met a savage man, because he certainly, or almost certainly, would have been eaten. There was a British comedian who had this to say in a serious interview, 60-second interview. I believe the sum total of good in humanity outweighs the sum total of evil, despite evidence to the contrary. Extraordinary, isn't it? I call that the blind faith of the atheist. Now, to make this sink in, many years ago now, I did an exercise which you may feel to be slightly blunt, but I wanted to really get hold of it. Um, I'm a farm boy, and we always leave London and go down to the farm, and we'd had the most wonderful holiday on, on that summer, and the whole of the family was gathered together. 
and we'd been out in the woods, we'd all had chainsaws, not the kids, obviously, but, you know, we had the chainsaws out, we'd been cutting up firewood, I always cut my mother's firewood every summer, they have no heating other than the fire, so I was down there, chainsaw, my wife, unbeknown to me, had taken all these pictures of all the people I love most, and at Christmas, by the way, it's coming up, this is quite a good idea for a present, she got a tray for about three quid, she printed out the pictures, she stuck them on the tray and painted over them in lacquer. Here were the people I love most in my life. My mum and my dad, my kids, my brothers and sisters, pictures of myself. And once I'd written out Jesus' analysis of humanity, I stuck that tray up and I said to myself as I went through each of these individuals, dead, condemned, helpless, evil, enslaved, blind, children of the devil. Do you believe that? It's Jesus' analysis of us. Do we think we know better than Jesus? This is what he considers our condition to be. And that explains why he came to do the work he came to do. To bring us from death to life from condemnation to forgiveness, from slavery to freedom, from belonging to Satan to belonging to God. Oh, you say, that doesn't describe me. Well, I think it does. Come back to verse 23 of our reading. Verse 23. Do you see what Jesus says here? Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Son, Father. Which of us, being honest with ourselves, can genuinely put our hands in the air and say, I honour Jesus with all the honour he deserves? And if you feel you could put your hand in the air, may I have a word with your wife? or your husband, please, after the service, or your ex-partner, or your ex-wife, or your children, or your parents. He who does not honour the Son does not honour the Father. Evidence of our natural state. I have two boys, I'm very proud of them both. One of them happens to be in Kenya at the moment, and... uh, Imagine that uh, I were to tell Mitch here that my son Archie is going to come and visit. And he's going to arrive here on the 30th of November. And I say, Mitch, would you really look after You looked after me so beautifully. Would you take him into your home and really look after him? And, uh, and then uh, halfway through November, I email Mitch and Jess, by the way, Archie's coming. Don't forget, will you? You will, you will remember, won't you? And um, he's going to arrive at Living Hope Church, and that's where he's going to come. So... And then just shortly before, I send Mitch and Jess a text. So you know Archie's coming on the 30th. He'll be on flight BA-55 or whatever it is, coming into Joe Bergen and fly up and all the rest of it. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. and, then, and then comes the 30th of November. There's no one there to meet at the airport. Strange. So Archie makes his own way up to, to the Bulawayo. And, and, and then he comes to Living Hope. And the bouncers on... Oh, well, they welcome us, sorry. But the, the people on the door... The people on the door say, I'm sorry, no, no, we don't want you here. 
and, and, and he sees Mitch, and Mitch, Mitch walks straight past him. Jess, Jess, totally ignores him. Now, what does that tell you about their appreciation of me, that they should reject my son? Jesus, God the Son, not having supreme, held, uh, oh, a bit part, yes, once in a while, I'll pay attention, tick the box, but here is Jesus' analysis of humanity and explains why Jesus came to do this particular, oh, he could have been a pretty good medic. I mean, if he wanted to set up a medical mission, I think Jesus would have done it pretty well. Uh, He could have been, uh, you know, a pretty good carpenter. I mean, I think actually if he decided he was going to build houses uh, for the dispossessed and that was going to be his main thing, that was what his prime agenda was, then, I, you know, he was a pretty good carpenter. He was the son of God. I expect he would have done it pretty well. But he tells us that his work on the earth is to bring spiritual life and ultimately then to bring judgment. That is what he's... Ah, you say, well, how's he come to do it? How is it that I get this life? Where, where does it... And that brings us to our final point in verse 24. And it's right there again in our key verse. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Whoever hears the living word of King Jesus receives Jesus into their life first and foremost, trusts him, places their life in the hands of Jesus Christ according to his spoken word. That is how he brings the dead to life. And he says it again, doesn't he, in verse 25. An hour is coming and is now here when the spiritually dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. How does he do his work? Through his word, by speaking that as I come to his word, his truth in the scriptures, life comes flooding into my dead soul. Well, you know, I ask myself, is there a good illustration of this life-giving work of Jesus through his life-giving word? And then you suddenly realise it's there in the paralysed man. He's been lying on his pallet for 38 years and he's completely paralysed. I asked a medic once what it would have been like for him to be paralysed for 38 years. And he said, oh, um, have you ever had a leg in plaster? Have you ever broken a limb? And the answer is, yes, I had. I broke my right leg. How long did it take you to recover full fitness? It took nine months before I reached the peak of physical fitness and uh, uh, Olympian manhood that you see standing before you today. Full nine months. And then with... Paralysis, there are contractures, aren't there? And the physios tell me it would have taken weeks of physio to get the blood pumping around this man's body again so he didn't sit up. And yet Jesus looks at him. Do you want to get well? There's nobody to put me in the pool. I tell you, pick up your mat and walk. And he picked up his mat and danced home rejoicing. Well, he doesn't actually say that in the text, does it? But I like to think he danced home. And here is the work of the Lord. He just spoke. 
and life came into this paralysed man's body. And so we draw to a close. This is one of my favourite passages in the whole of the Bible because on December the 18th, 1979, my grandfather, who I was staying with, went through this passage and I turned to follow Jesus for myself. I thought I was Christian. Actually, I was staying with my grandfather for a reason. I was at boarding school at the time and I had been asked to spend some time away from school by the authorities for reasons that are none of your business. And I went to stay with my granddad and he went through this passage and particularly focused on verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. He has crossed over from death to life. I thought I was Christian. I'd been going to church for 18 years. I had never personally turned to follow Jesus and surrendered to him. And that evening, this paralyzed corpse of an 18-year-old received Jesus and spiritually rose. That, that could be you this evening. You may have been coming to church all your life. We, we may have been raised in a Christian family. Or we may have just walked in for the first time this evening. But we've never actually surrendered to Jesus and received him and his word into our life. This is what Jesus is doing. Bringing the spirit. This is his top priority before everything else. Oh, he could have done all these other things. But he gave himself on that cross through his death and resurrection to bring spiritual life to dead corpses that deserve only condemnation and judgment. And we will face him in judgment, every one of us. The question is, will we face him as one who is alive or one who is condemned? For the majority of us, we probably consider ourselves followers of Jesus. And I want to take us back to those two crows. Information is everything. If only they'd known, I mean, I tried telling them that there was a red cross on the bottom of the tree in which they were building their nest. They paid no attention. They just wouldn't do the household survey and all this sort of stuff. And so they carried on building regardless. Information is everything. We know what Jesus is doing on the earth. And I suppose the question then is, will we line our whole life up around his priority of bringing his word to the spiritually dead ahead of everything else. That's what he did. Ahead of everything else. Life to the dead.
And so I conclude with a, a question. What on earth is God doing? What on earth are we doing? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we praise you that from your immeasurable love you sent your only Son into the world, that whoever believes in him, whoever receives his word and receives the Lord Jesus into their lives will not perish but rather have everlasting life. I pray that even this, this evening, there may be one or two for whom this life from you comes flooding in. We stop putting things off. We actually want to be healed and life would come into our lives. For those who have received the Lord Jesus already and turn to follow him, grant us, we pray, Lord, the understanding to make his key priority our key priority to receive his word gladly and engage in the advance of his word and truth for your name's sake.